left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. You don't go in and be a cowboy. You build your house solid. You have money put away for a rainy day. And that's just the sensible, cautious way to do things. And it's the way that we believe philosophically we need to be good stewards of people's hard-earned capital. So with all that said, we had about almost 20 million square feet of office real estate. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Whitney Sewell from LifeBridge Capital. You are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm really excited today to have Evelyn Massa with us. She is the Vice President of Private Investments at Group RMC. It's a family business and a private partnership co-investment company. And they're focusing on underappreciated institutional quality office properties across the U.S. in non-gateway markets, primarily in the Midwest and Southeast, I was really fortunate to be able to tour some of those properties and really get a sense of what Group RMC is doing. And so we're really excited to have Evelyn today to talk to us more about the office asset class. So Evelyn, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thank you, Jim. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. And it's nice to connect again. The first question I always ask is, what is your journey? How did you get into finance, real estate, office, all of that. If you can kind of just take us back how you got here, that'd be a great place to start. Yeah, for sure. I think I'd say I took the scenic route to real estate investing. So to give you context, our family has been investing in real estate sort of on the side since like the late 80s. My father, we didn't come from any kind of wealth or didn't have any family legacy. We had to build that up. So my dad had a successful business in the financial services industry. We're from Montreal, Canada originally. So that's where I grew up and and still live. So he wanted to know, know, how do these big families, how do they accumulate wealth? How do you grow passive investments, have your money work for you, have buildings by buildings? Like, how do you get to there? And so he had a mentor here in the uh, Montreal real estate community, and they started to do some deals together and put few investors together and buddies and friends and brother-in-law. I know your sister wants in, no problem. And And so they started becoming active in real estate, but really a sort of a side gig. And the first real acquisition window they took advantage of was during the savings and loans crisis. 
down in Texas in the late 80s, early 90s. So you had a situation there where the institutional money would not touch it with a 10-foot pole, but you had a lot of value and incredible pricing. So you had a bunch of private investors who went down there and did really well for themselves and made small fortunes. And this group did very well, this group of investors that my dad put together. And eventually one of Sam Zell's REITs came knocking and they had a nice exit. And then everybody sort of went down to their back to their day jobs. And and then another acquisition window opened up where you had this opportunity to like buy a dollar for less than a dollar, the dream, the value investing dream. And that was here in the French speaking part of Canada, there was a movement for the province to split from the rest of the country, right? We speak French here, culturally it's different. And that created a lot of political uncertainty and the real estate market crashed. There were no transactions happening. Everybody was very unsure. The banks left Montreal, they went to Toronto. And so there was a great buying opportunity, another moment where like a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. So again, group of friends and families got together. And at that point, we started focusing on office real estate and buying incredible deals and incredible makes no sense pricing with huge cash on cash in very unsexy markets, places you wouldn't necessarily find on a map, Granby, Sherbrooke, Drummondville, Quebec City, these smaller markets where the yields were incredibly attractive and where the crowds, they weren't showing up. So did well there. They sold most of that portfolio to a Toronto listed REIT that came knocking uh, about mid-2000s. And then after that, everybody sort of sat on their hands and waited. The next window that opened up and where Group RNC as it is really was born was after the Great Recession of 2008. Now, my dad was American. He always loved the States. We always wanted to somehow just skim a little bit off the top of this, the American dream right to the south of us. We just wanted in, just give us a little crumb. And so we were started poking around the Midwest. My dad got his executive doctorate at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. And so I think that really helped us to understand the incredible strength of these markets and like how overlooked they are. You've got the Cleveland Clinic, you've got this world-class university campus, you've got the parking lots are full, this vibrant economy, just like, wow, this is huge economies, huge opportunity in plain sight. Everybody sticks to New York, they stick to LA, they stick to Boston, they stick to the gateway market. So that was like kind of a light bulb moment. And we started looking around Ohio and Indianapolis and suburban Chicago and these sorts of places to look for interesting acquisitions. And we saw that there was a huge opportunity there. And in particular, we were seeing that institutional grade office portfolios, super high quality, super high cash on cash, often they were held by institutional owners pension funds, insurance companies, the Blackstones of the world, the real estate funds that are in and out in five or six years, often they need to sell. You have a sovereign wealth fund that's in a JV with a local operator and they need to reposition their capital. You have all these situations where high quality, cash flow positive office real estate is being offloaded for non-economic reasons. And often you just don't have that many buyers in these quote unquote sleepier markets in terms of transactions to come and cleanly, reliably close on these bigger deals. And so that was like, oh, we could turn this into a business. So back in 2011, this sort of ragdag group of investors, you know, we sort of got together and created a real estate co-investment group. So essentially, we're a group of families that get together and buy these large undervalued office portfolios and really treat them as landlords. We're not buying and flipping. We're not holding for three years and selling. We're not riding momentum. We are just buying and holding and focusing on the long term, on cash on cash, refinancing at buildings by buildings and compounding that way. 
And so since that time, since we set up Group RMC in 2011, we've now grown to a portfolio of 21 million square feet, 210 buildings across 14 U.S. states. So everywhere up from the upper Great Lakes region, Minneapolis and Milwaukee and suburban Chicago, where we're one of the largest office landlords, down through the Midwest, a lot of stuff in Indiana and Ohio and Louisville and down through sort of Memphis and Tulsa and that stuff. And we bought something in Houston during the pandemic and down through Jacksonville. And so really kind of the flyover states. And if those are overlooked markets, thank goodness, because the economies are absolutely incredible, thriving, diversified, and you have just not that many buyers for these big opportunities. So we're able to get good pricing. So how I joined the business is this was started up by my brother and my dad, my late father. And we got to the point about 2017, the buildings were always a thing in our family. My dad had little framed pictures of these ugly buildings in Quebec sitting around the house because we were so proud of them. But I didn't think I was going to join the business. I studied in sociology. So I went to grad school, went to Oxford. I really thought I was going to be a professor. And then life kind of took me a different direction. I worked in politics, local politics for a little while up here in Montreal. And then we got to the point where the business was getting much bigger and our base of investors around the world was getting much better. So we had to have sort of a way of communicating with them, setting up kind of an investor relations department and getting the reporting much tighter. And so there was a whole process of several years of putting those systems in place. And so I joined to take part in that. And my brother today runs the business. So he's very involved, obviously, with the vision of the business and the structuring of the acquisitions. And I'm much a lot on the relationship side of the business. And we have a team of now 45 people across four offices in New York and Montreal and Chicago and two offices in Florida we just opened and a team in Columbus that oversees the management and leasing of the whole portfolio. So we've built something very special. So that's how I found myself here. That's an amazing story. And I like hearing that the family business is, is still going with your, your brother. As you know, I met a bunch of the team and was really impressed. One of the things that I really was interesting to me, and again, you know, we're talking to a community that most of us start out in multifamily, probably very few of us are in office, except for some of us did have the opportunity to invest with you guys, but it's a new asset class for us. And because of the pandemic, it's a scary asset class, but you kind of talked me off the ledge there. So I'd like to start with, can you talk to me about why now is a good time? It's a distressed asset just because of maybe perception and because people aren't working in offices as much. And the perception might be no one's ever coming back. So why am I going to buy into a building in downtown Columbus, Ohio, or downtown Milwaukee, or the suburbs of Chicago, when people are going to be sitting in their own homes working. So can you talk about that a little bit? Of course, yeah. So we were drawn to office first and foremost, because we're value investors. And over the years, we've developed a real deep knowledge and specialization about how to do this asset class well. So really, it's a capital intensive asset class, right? So it can be scary. You can really fall flat on your face if you're not well capitalized. If you go in over levered, if you take too many risks, my dad used to say that we're cowards, but let somebody else be the hero. So as long as we've been in business, you always want to invest almost defensively, right? So we are multi-tenant landlords. We don't have any singles and we don't have empties. You always want to own a little bit of a lot of real estate. You want to collect rent from a lot of tenants. You never want to have too much tenancy concentration in any one building where that can make the whole project fall apart if that one linchpin falls out. There are all kinds of ways that you want to minimize risk. You want to capitalize your deals with a ton of front reserves. So we have across our portfolio about $200 million of cash equivalents at the partnership level. So you always want to be able to handle whatever comes your way, obviously basis. So we've target acquisitions with huge cash on cash 
returns. That's the return that we focus on and sort of seven to 10% cap rates, which obviously as your real estate investors will know is the unlevered yield. So really being able to find those small niches in real estate where you're able to buy deep value and also at a steep discount to replacement. So one of the reasons why we really like these Midwestern markets that we're in is that you have a situation where rents haven't really gone up in the last 20 years, the same way that they have in family or other asset classes. And to us, that's a good thing. Because if you're buying at a low basis, you're in a market where new supply is constrained. You'll have some built to suits here and there, but you don't have a horizon full of cranes. Once the cranes arrive, it's not a market you want to be buying in anymore. Well, you already own stuff there. So those are all of the ways that favor long-term fixed rate debt. We have an LTV, a loan to value ratio of 50 to 55%, which is quite conservative when you take into account all of those reserves. So all of the ways that you just, you don't go in and be a cowboy. You build your house solid and you have money put away for a rainy day. And that's just the sensible, cautious way to do things. And it's the way that we believe philosophically we need to be good stewards of people's hard-earned capital. So with all that said, we had about almost 20 million square feet of office real estate and then this pandemic. So we're like, well, listen, we believe in our investment philosophy. We've stuck to our principles. We've been disciplined. We've never done a bad deal. We've never bent on the own rule set for ourselves. Okay, but now hold on tight. Like, let's see what, <laughs> that's all well and good, but let's see how the next couple of years play out. We were surprised to see, you know, 20 million square feet gives you a good data point. We've drawn some interesting conclusions based on what's happened in the last few years. So the first is that rent collections remain steady. So this was surprising. All you heard was about distressed owners and failing tenants. And in fact, rent collections stayed steady at 99% throughout the pandemic. So that was a pleasant surprise, number one. The second thing is that overall occupancy across our portfolio was about the same as it was pre-pandemic, a little slightly higher. We were trying to separate the noise from the signal here and what people are saying. But the real lesson that we've taken from the pandemic and that we've taken very seriously is that there is a flight to quality. So employers want to bring their employees back into the office and tenants have to fight for the business of those employers who are making decisions. HR departments hold more power than they probably ever have in terms of the return to the office policies. That's one lesson that we've really taken seriously from all of this, that there will be winners and losers from this pandemic. And actually what we're seeing is that A- minus stuff with the conference rooms, the nice lobbies, the coffee in the entranceway, the fitness centers, newly renovated sort of white light and bright common areas, all of this stuff has a market impact on leasing activity, which is really the the oxygen of your portfolio. Also having really stellar and engaged and competent management and leasing teams. So as an aside, we don't self-manage and self-lease. We work with all the large third-party providers who are very, very large corporate contracts with CBRE and Cushman and Wakefield and whoever is the, the really the star team in any market. That's who we want to be working with because we know that leasing is what brings in the oxygen to your portfolio and then good management is what keeps them there. So all of these things we take very, very seriously. And so because we didn't have any fires to put out through the pandemic and because we were well capitalized in order to invest in our spaces as needed. And on top of that, what you had was a crisis. Nobody wanted office. So that was a terrible thing to waste. We actually acquired about half a billion dollars worth of office real estate through the pandemic. I think we've seen the last of the COVID deals, but we had some of the most incredible pricing for high quality assets in Houston, in Jacksonville in downtown Columbus, Ohio, markets where we actually never thought we would be able to enter 
But because you had these distressed sellers, often cross-levered and over-levered, or that had to reposition capital and they were on their second or third extension, and you just had these situations where they had to sell and nobody was there to buy. So when you're doing things right and structuring your investments conservatively, you can grow even in a shrinking market. You can always do that. You're only owning a few percent of the office stock in any given market. If you can offer a high quality product at a lower price than your competitor, the business is there. So that's really how we've always wanted to position ourselves and it's how we continue to position ourselves. And another trend that we noticed through COVID, right through the heart of COVID, was that leasing activity changed. And what I mean by that is that commercial lease, it comes due when it comes due and it doesn't care what's going on out there in the world. So as leases were coming due right in the heart of COVID, we were seeing that tenants were kind of kicking the can down the road. They weren't renewing for the 10 years. They were renewing for 18 months. Horizon was still very fuzzy and very murky. And so decision makers didn't want to make any long-term decisions. So they were renewing for sort of short-term, which short-term in terms of NOI is, you know, those are cheap deals. You don't have to put much in terms of tenant improvements or no leasing costs associated with it. So in the short term, that was okay, but that's certainly not the direction you want your business to go. That was happening to the heart of COVID. And then what we saw is about a year ago, those longer term leases, the bigger leases, the 10, 20 square foot leases, the six, eight, 10 year leases, they started to happen again, but you had to fight for them. So landlords have to really not take their tenants for granted and really offer them the kinds of amenities that are going to help employers bring their, their employees back to work. Because it's clear to us and it's clear when we speak to tenants, the employers want their employees back. They want their people in the office. They want to train their young employees. They want to have a company culture. They want to have a sense of community. They know that things are more productive when everybody's working together in the same place. So we actually found that smaller local businesses have been amongst the first to bring their people back because they can't absorb a hit to productivity the same way one of these giant banks might or there are sort of the larger the institution we found sometimes a little slower to bring people back because the decision goes all the way to the top at headquarters in London and New York. Whereas local businesses, they've been back at work for a long time. And there are certain markets like Florida and Texas where things never really budge. People haven't really left. So there's not a simple story. And there are as many back to the office plans as there are employers. And across our portfolio, that's about over 2,000. So you just want to be well positioned to be on the winning end of whatever changes come. We've never been crystal ball investors. We don't know what the future holds. So you just want to control what you can control and focus on that. Focus on the value, on buying a dollar for less than a dollar, investing in your space, making sure that you're well positioned to attract those tenants when they do come back and make sure you do what you can to keep them there. So that's really been what we've seen. And again, not a crystal ball prediction, but As far as migration goes, it seems likely that the Midwest is going to be really on the winning end of those trends. You know, if an employer realizes they don't have to rent six or seven floors in Manhattan or in LA, the most expensive real estate markets in the world, that you've got a very competent engineer, programmer, whatever kind of professional you're looking for coming out of these incredible universities in the Midwest, and then it costs you a fraction in rent and that they can work from anywhere this actually might prove to be advantageous for the kinds of secondary markets we're in. We're already seeing it. I mean, the people in your community from Ohio, they've all heard how Intel is investing $20 billion in the largest chip manufacturing plant in the world right outside of Columbus. We're the largest office landlord in Dublin, Ohio. 
great. We didn't predict that. Re-onshoring of manufacturing that the current administration is putting in place. Just a general sort of bringing it back onshore, bringing production back onshore, bringing all the ecosystems that come along with that back to the American heartland. We didn't predict that. But I mean, if there are tailwinds that are going to hit our business coming from all of this, that's great. But we just know no matter what happens, when you buy a dollar for less than a dollar and you have a low basis, you can bring down rents if you need to to attract tenants. You can pay the leasing commissions. You can invest in your space and redo the lobby and redo the elevator that the last landlord ran out of breath and didn't have a buck to put in. So they just sold it. You're in a position of strength. And so there's no single story about what's happening in office real estate. But in this kind of office real estate, when structured right, and when you're focused on the long term and you don't have a two, three year horizon, you're really thinking about it as a landlord. It's a very attractive space and we continue to invest heavily in it as a family and and our co-investors. And I'll just mention one thing. We work with families from around the world, right? So you've got people in every continent, every corner of the world who want a piece of what's in your backyard in Columbus and Indianapolis and Memphis and these places. So it's pretty funny. I mean, it's really a treasure. That's crazy because you mentioned Dublin, Ohio. That's where I happen to live and that's where I happen to be sitting right now. And to think that people from all over the world are investing in Dublin, Ohio. They came on the same trip that they flew from very far away to check out this mysterious place that is Columbus and come away with it extremely impressed and shattering a lot of stereotypes they might have had about these kind of flyover states. When we met, we were talking and I thought you explained this great. So I'd like you to explain to the listeners as well. You constantly talk about buying low bases, get a dollar for less than a dollar. And the way that the office operates was, was very intriguing to me because you said a lot of these buyers, when they first buy these deals, they have like a seven-year term or a five-year term. And when it gets to the end of that, they have no options. They have to sell. So it might be that they're selling at a great time or it might be that they're selling at a horrible time, but there's no choices. It's hard to extend. So can you talk a little bit about how you capitalize on that? And that's part of the reason you're able to get these deals because these institutional buyers have these mandates that they have to move on and they have to sell even if they're going to lose money. That's exactly right. And that presents a huge opportunity from an investor's point of view. And so we've been in business for over 10 years doing just this in these markets. So we've developed a reputation. And my dad used to say, you want to show up and be the nice Canadians. You know, we'll be a pleasure to deal with. We will close at favorable terms on time. When we go hard with deposit, we always come up with the money. When somebody shakes our hand, they don't have to count their fingers afterwards. There's just a sense that we're a reliable transaction partner. And that is incredibly valuable for these sellers from the institutional world who are on a tight timeline or they're late to get rid of some of these things. And so they're willing to take a haircut on price in exchange for a certainty of close, which is something that we pride ourselves in providing. We don't retrade, which means changing the terms and the pricing at the very last minute, because that's going to come out of the poor selling commission, uh, selling broker's commission. And is he going to want to work with us down the road if we make his life difficult at the last minute? No. So you just transact in an honorable way. You stick to your word. You do what you say and you finish what you start. You have that reputation. And that also helps us source deals. So we are sometimes made aware of upcoming transactions. We have great relationships in this world. It's a big world. It encompasses the whole Midwest and Southeast so far, but it's still a small world. People know each other. We'll have reputations. So our head of acquisitions, Mark Montross, who's based in Chicago, who's constantly on the road, checking out deals, speaking with brokers, chatting with people, seeing what's up, touring the portfolio as well, but really looking out for these opportunities. And this was especially true through COVID. 
We've acquired some absolutely incredible deals. We acquired an 11 cap from a suburban portfolio in Chicago being sold by a large financial institution on one of their funds through COVID. And so they have to liquidate assets. They have to. Who was buying at that time? Right in the heart of COVID. And of course, we had a successful first transaction with them. And then a few months later, because of that successful transaction, we were able to acquire an absolutely beautiful A-class property, 5718 Westheimer in the Galleria subdistrict of Houston, which never in a million years did we think we would own something in Houston. I mean, that was, I mean, that window's closed up now. Those COVID deals are, are behind us, but it's still possible to participate in them through our Evergreen Fund. So in answer to your question, I think a reputation as a reliable transaction partner on these kinds of deals when institutional sellers are in a position where they are on a time crunch to offload some assets for their own reasons. We're not smarter than them. They just have a different set of incentives and a different context they're working in. So that's really provided an opportunity for us and our investors that we continue to take advantage of as, as long as they get good. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. At BAM Capital, we democratize institutional-grade multifamily assets for the individual investor. Since inception, we've averaged over a 31% annualized return net to our investors. My name is Ivan Barrett. I'm the founder and CEO of BAM Capital. I sincerely hope you go to the website capital.thebamcompanies.com and check out BAM Capital. Yeah. So I want to back up a little bit and go back to COVID. I don't want to go back to COVID, but the topic of COVID, I guess, because it took a lot of convincing for me to understand people are really going back to the office because I talk to my friends and they're all sitting at home still. Few things I just want to understand. So I understand that you have high occupancy, meaning the buildings are leased out. But can you talk about the occupancy from how many people are coming into those fully leased out offices? Are you at 50%, 60%? I know we talked, it depends on the market, but talk about that. And then what are companies doing to get people back to the office? You talked about amenities. What new amenities are you putting in and what changes are you making? Because I think when some of the buildings we toured, you talked about, we're getting rid of cubicles, putting open spaces in more offices and different regions are doing different things. So I know that's like seven questions wrapped in one, but if you can just kind of talk in general about how you're getting people back to the office, what they're doing, the amenities, and all the things to drive occupancy of actually people in the building. 
It depends on the market in terms of who is like physically going to the office. What we're seeing is that actually usage is very, very high, but people aren't coming in every day. Sometimes you'll have parking lot that's however percentage full, but everybody has come in at least once that week. So it's a little bit hard to keep track of. So probably flexible working days, hours, some kind of flexible scheduling. That looks like it's become a norm. I remember my dad saying right at the beginning of this, he's like, yeah, but you can't rent your space Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And there's something to that, right? So it's not clear how that will impact footprint. We're not seeing a huge contraction of tenants' footprints, and we are seeing increased leasing activity. So that's a signal to us of how employers are thinking about their space needs long-term. But a lot of them are still not sure yet. So what we found is the economy's doing well. Employers' businesses are growing. This is what we're hearing from our tenants. What they don't know yet is how much space they're going to need. And so what we found is that a lot of tenants are sort of like, from one day to the next, they're like, okay, you know what? I need space. And they've been at home this whole time. And then like, I need space. So actually, in order to answer that need, we've developed a program of developing spec spaces, that's speculative um, spaces. They're fitted out, usually with furniture, often sort of flexible furniture, the walls are painted, the floors are done, and that has two advantages. The first is that from a landlord's perspective, it allows us to control costs. In an environment where there's supply chain crunches, where construction costs are very high, this allows us to sort of get upstream of that and control how much money is invested in the space. But what it also allows is for when tenants re-enter the rental market and decide they need space, and often employers are doing this kind of the last minute decision, I need space yesterday. There aren't very many landlords kitting out space before the tip space is rented. And so that's, we become automatically a finalist in the running for those things. And often they take it as is. So that's one of the things we're finding that often the decision to come back to the office is like a snap decision almost. And so we're trying to really accommodate for that. And then the other major trend, I can't overestimate how much amenities is really a key importance in terms of our leasing and our approach to being landlords in this environment and also in terms of bringing people back to the office. I mean, there are a couple of case studies that we put into place. So right before COVID, I think it was literally March 2020, we toured it together, Jim. So PNC Center, which is right in downtown Cincinnati. And so you've got great building, great bones. We bought it at over an eight cap at 79% occupied right before COVID. And you had PNC Bank, nice anchor tenant there. As an aside, PNC Bank took up 20% of the rentable space in that building, which from our perspective as landlords is too much tenancy concentration. So we actually combined this acquisition with suburban Detroit portfolio of, I think, 12 buildings that was already stabilized, just been spitting out cash, like just like a workhorse through this whole period. It hasn't budged. So you combine them together and ah, you mitigate the risk just to give some context on the acquisition process of that building. But so we had PNC Center. And when you walked into the lobby, you had PNC Bank that sort of was renting some space in the back and it was sort of didn't look that nice. And the lobby was a little tired. It looked like you were walking into sort of 1997. It needed a refresh. And so we knew this right going in. And so we had a plan to make major capital expenditures into the property in order for it to catch up to its competitive set. And because of our low basis, we'd be able to attract tenants. This was the plan that we were going to put into place. So as soon as COVID hit, it happened to coincide with when we were going to start investing money into this place. So we put, I believe it was over $3 million in order to redo the lobby. And you saw it, right? It feels like you're walking into a boutique hotel. It has a 
beautiful conference rooms with state-of-the-art projectors and you have chairs at the front and you have a coffee area and a lot of workspaces and shared meeting spots in the bottom and beautiful plants and there's a golf simulator there's a ping pong table i mean the works and that really drew the attention in the local market we had a brokers event for local leasing brokers and we invited everybody in our team from columbus went up there and greeted everybody and it was really like a coming out party because these buildings they have reputations management the leasing the amenities and if it falls behind its competitive set or it has a reputation as oh, not so nice they're running out of money then that gets known but on the inverse side of that once a new owner comes in and breathes new life into a business into a property which i guess is a business that is also known in this property since 2020 when we acquired it occupancy has gone up from 79 to i think it's 88% now i'd have to check in and so leasing activity has really been robust. And also rents per square foot have increased from sort of $12, $13 range to $15, $16, even $17 a square foot net rent. And this happened through COVID. The starting line was March 2020. So it's a really interesting case study of what happens when you invest in your space right. The business is there. The tenants are there. They want the space. They want to bring their people back. They need a space that will justify them bringing people back and where people will want to go to. We signed a huge lease with Johnson & Johnson in that property. And they said, well, you want a fitness center for our, oh, you know what? We're building out a beautiful fitness center. It should be ready in the next few months. I was there last week. So construction is underway. We're able to move quickly. We have the funds. We have the cash. It was all part of the plan. And so we're really in a position to capitalize on all of these trends. And so this was kind of a really important learning experience for us as landlords. And so we're putting in place that same kind of approach of investing in a robust way in the space to put in place those amenities that are really bringing people back and they're really attracting and leasing activity. So we're doing that in Jacksonville. We're doing that in downtown Columbus, 65 East State Street, which you're familiar with. So we're going to activate the whole lobby area and we're investing a lot of space inside, putting spec suites in there. We're doing that in Milwaukee, Chase Tower, also acquired an incredible COVID deal. That's in the process of being repositioned and there's already buzz surrounding that building. So that's really one of the important lessons that have come out from all of this. I hope I answered some of your questions. I've lost track. <laughs> you definitely did. I always ask multi-part questions and then I lose track of what I asked, but you nailed it. And really, the thing I couldn't believe when we went on that tour went in one of the lobbies and it was just the old fashioned office lobby. And I thought, this looks fine to me. I mean, who cares? That's a lobby. I'm just walking through it. And then you walk into the ones that have been redone and they have the shared space and they have the ping pong table or the room that has like a bar and a gaming table or something. There's all kinds of stuff to do. And then you realize, oh yeah, making the lobby nice is a good thing because it really changes it. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and, and talk about how to invest, right? Because the structure of your deals. I know there's an evergreen fund, and then you also have single deals or, or group deals, no asset management fees, no performance fees, no carried interest. Can you talk a little bit just about the structure and how people invest? That's, of course, a good question. So you mentioned that there are no... Man and indeed, we don't charge any ongoing fees whatsoever, no management fees, no commitment fees, there's no carry, there's no J-curve. And if ever there's an exit through sale of any of these properties, there are no fees at the back end. We really see this as like, let's be landlords together. Let's co-invest together. So the way we structure our deals is we'll get a deal under contract. We'll put together the financing, structure it, put together the materials. And then essentially we splice the deal into units. 
And then we just use a cost plus pricing system. So we mark up the price of a unit in the deal by 6% of the total acquisition cost. We call that the co-investment premium. And we take that in equity, our family, the principles of RMC, alongside our own capital that we put into every single deal. So we have, I'd say at least depending on the size of the deal, sort of five to 12% of the equity in every single deal. We are coming at it from the point of view of family investor that just wants to own a piece of these buildings and just hold it, you know, buildings by buildings. And it just doesn't make sense if you have a fee structure, like a five and 20 fee structure, where you're incentivized at the end of the day to sell, to realize your back-end fees, you deploy the money afterwards. So as long-term landlords, it's not really how it works. And I think that fee structure works well for investors too. It's very transparent. You see upfront exactly what you're paying and on a long hold period, well, it comes out cheaper. So happy to talk more about that. But just to give you a context, there are no ongoing fees whatsoever. When you're buying it at eight, nine, 10 cap, as my dad used to say, there's enough meat on the bone, nobody's hungry. So all that to say, most of our business since we've been in business has been kind of a deal per deal business. We put the word out and then investors kind of invest on a deal per deal basis. I like this one. I like Milwaukee. Oh, pass. I have too much Memphis already. Whatever. In 2019, we started thinking that a lot of our investors, they didn't really have the capacity or the desire really to do deal by deal due diligence. They kind of liked the strategy. They liked the group. They had toured the assets with us. And they just want to make a nice allocation and have that money put to work across our deals. So we sort of reversed engineered an evergreen feeder fund. So essentially, it's a vehicle that aggregates a large number of investors and families into one LP. And that that LP automatically invests in every single deal that we do, starting in 2019 when we set the vehicle up and going forward for all of our future deals. So Somebody who invests in that vehicle today, buys units in that vehicle today, participates in all of those incredible COVID deals, including PNC Center in Cincinnati that I just talked to you about with the ping pong table and Jacksonville and 65 East and that super just cash cow in suburban Detroit where we can't believe, I mean, they're not much to look at, but you wouldn't believe how much there's been a lot of leasing activity there. And, you know, it participates across 10 investments, 71 properties totaling almost 9 million square feet across 10 states. And so you've got this automatic diversification that will just continue going forward. And so what you're buying is units in that vehicle. And, you know, as transparent as you like, you've got a data room, all the information on the underlying deals is in there. And it has a right of first offering on every single deal we do because we want to make sure that it participates in every single opportunity. So that's a commitment-based vehicle. And then we put the money to work over the next 12 months. So it has quarterly closings. I'd be happy to answer any questions you have about it. But it's the same fee structure, right? Because that vehicle invests in the deals. It pays that co-investment premium up front. And then it's a pure co-investor alongside everybody else. And it invests essentially like the big family offices of this world invest. They do a little bit in every deal or they do a little bit in a dozen deals or rather than having that concentration. I don't care if you're the Koch brothers or whoever, if you're buying an entire $150 million property all to yourself, that's a kind of risk that we wouldn't recommend. We like owning a little bit of a lot and that's how this vehicle invests. And so sometimes with smaller investors, they can sort of kind of bunch together to sort of form kind of one bigger investor and then that that can take uh, some space up in the Evergreen vehicle too. So often that's the best way to go get access to these deals. That's what you guys did for left field investors, right? The minimum on this fund, I think it's $500,000, which is a little more than most people in our community want to do in one check. You guys allowed us to invest as individuals. 
as long as we got to that minimum from left field. And we're very thankful for that. And, and we did. And in fact, I'm funding that this week. So that's pretty exciting. I imagine we might be able to do that again for people that are listening and thinking, oh, did I miss out? I don't have 500 grand in my pocket. My hope would be that six months from now or one of the next closings, we can try this again because I think it was pretty successful and it's a great way to get into office. And I want to also talk about something that we kind of skipped over a little bit is the debt, the financing on these properties. Because again, we look at everything from multifamily perspective and we understand that and we're looking for fixed rate debt. It's hard to find. So you need caps on the adjustments. So can you talk about how the debt works for office? Just a note, we just want to really thank you for your trust and to your investors as well. We were, quote, I'm doing air quotes now, but small investors relatively recently. And we know that that's how wealth in a family is built and happy to accommodate. We're very glad that we're able to partner together on these deals. And we take that responsibility very seriously. In order to answer your question about the debt, as I mentioned, we like to favor long-term fixed rate debt. So as soon as it's possible to put that on, if the deal is already stabilized, that's what we'll do. But in recent years, some of the deals that we've done have been value-add deals where there is work to be done in terms of bringing the occupancy where it needs to be. Got an incredible basis, huge discount to replacement. Often you're buying from an out-of-breath seller where they were kind of in a downward spiral and occupancy was going, they were losing tenants. And, ah, you need to sort of right the ship. And so in those cases, we'll often put two, three or four year bridge loan. And so those are often floating rates, but we buy interest rate caps in order, again, to protect the underlying capital and not be subject to the ups and downs of the capital markets. And so that's what we've done. So again, we don't want to over lever. We often buy from over levered and cross lever the landlord. So we really want to be cautious with debt. As I mentioned, we have an adjusted loan to value ratio of 50 to 55%. We've actually become more conservative with debt and with that LTV since COVID because we know things can get a little crazy. And capital markets are also uh, tricky at the moment. So yeah, we're extra cautious on the acquisition side. We haven't actually had a deal under contract since earlier this year. And we've been on a lot. We've actually strangely been out. So we know what we're doing, right? We know pricing guidance. Like, well, this isn't our first rodeo. And so we sent bids on, I think it was 5 million square feet office real estate in these markets that we know well in the last, call it, I don't know, 10 months or so. And we were outbid. And what we were seeing was that it was a lot of new entrants to these markets, people from the industrial and the multifamily world who were seeing their yields being compressed and then started sort of sniffing around these kinds of acquisitions and outbidding us, which we just won't do a bad deal. So we'd rather just wait it out. And actually with interest rates going up, we do think that there are going to be some sort of distressed sales, distressed owners, kind of some blood in the streets deals coming up later in the last quarter of this year, early next year. So our deal team is underwriting and keeping an eye on quite a few acquisitions. And again, always being very cautious with how much debt to place. That's not my side of this. We have a whole team that we work with, a debt broker that works with all the large institutions. They know us. They know how we like to work. Happy to put you in touch with the experts on our team who deal with the actual sourcing of the debt and structuring of it. But high level, that's how we operate. That's great. And then you intend to hold forever. What's the sell decision if there is one? And you talked early on about your family was exiting through selling to REITs. Is that a possibility in the future? Kind of, can you talk about the hold period and what the future may be? So again, we want to be very upfront that these are not meant to be thought of as liquid investments. They're quite a liquid, like infrastructure, like real bricks and mortar. You're owning it. And so we really want to go into it with kind of a mentality of indefinite hold period. 
We're not opposed to selling, of course, but it has to be dictated by price first and foremost. It has to be accretive to the partnership. It has to be the right thing to do and for the right reasons. We have 210 buildings across 14 states. It's unlikely, I think, in terms of how an exit would happen, that we sell these assets one at a time on a granular way, the same way we bought them. If there is an exit at some point, this is just thinking out loud. I know I've talked about this with my brother a little bit. We're at 2.5 billion AUM at the moment. When we're sort of double that, it could become interesting for institutional investor of some kind, a German pension fund, the CDPQ, one of these, to sort of look at this nice, diversified slice of middle America and be interested in maybe taking a portion of it or something like that. Again, this is not a plan. It's just what might be more likely in terms of an exit. And then that would offer underlying LPs the option, but not the obligation to exit. So that's sort of high level, not a promise again, but just look at the dynamics that seems more likely. And then in terms of liquidity for individual investors, obviously we don't want to hold anybody hostage. Yes, yes. Let's be in the same mind. We're in this for the long haul, real investing together. Fine. But I mean, life happens, you know, divorce, estate stuff, whatever. Sometimes people need to get out. And so with this Evergreen Feeder Fund, which by the way is called the Group RMC Master Co-Invest LP, we actually keep 5% of the assets in the fund in cash or cash equivalents to facilitate yearly redemption requests. And there's sort of a table after year. If you've held it for only one year, there would be a steeper discount to the fair value of the assets. If you hold it for five years, okay, a little smaller discount. It's all laid out in the documents. That's how it works across the business. It's usually we just figure out a secondary, either our family buys somebody out or we know a lot of families in our network who are really eager to get in all older deals that they missed out on. So that's usually how it works on a high macro level, probably won't sell the assets one at a time. But you know, who knows? We remember when industrial was the pits. Now it's white hot. So if a suburban office in Kansas and, and Columbus and Cincinnati becomes a trend, we're here for it. But it has to be pricing first and foremost that determines an exit through sale. This asset class is just super interesting to me. And I was really glad to have toured and learned all that I did. And then this podcast just cementing it in there. So I thank you for that. The last question I always ask my podcast is, What's a great podcast that you like to listen to? It can be business related or it can just be something else that's interesting. I'm a big podcast person. so And this is my first podcast I've ever been on. So there's something a little surreal, full circle about all of this. So thanks again for the opportunity. So the first one is called Ones and Twos. It's this economist called Adam Twos, a very proper British guy who's an economics professor and also a historian. And so he'll sort of help you understand the economics news and the macroeconomics news and foreign policy stuff with an economics perspective. He just has an encyclopedic knowledge of the world. So he'll just go on deep dives. I love a good deep dives. He does it in a really entertaining way. So it's called Ones and Twos. And his last name is Adam, you know, T-O-O-Z-E. So that's a good one. He's a contributor to foreign policy. And then the other one is just a fun one. It's called The Winds of Change. Do you remember that song from like 1990 by the Scorpions? You've stepped into my world because the Scorpions were my favorite band of all time. I listened to that podcast. I actually flew to Vegas this year just to see the Scorpions in concert. So I'm all about Winds of Change. Phenomenal. Stop it. Okay, so do you know about this podcast then? Yeah, I've listened to it and I loved it. Yes, phenomenal podcast. And you don't have to be a Scorpions fan to like it, right? No, you don't. I didn't even know the song. Anyway, long story short, you know this already, but it's this journalist called Patrick Radden Keefe, who's written a bunch of 
great, great books. I'm listening to one at the moment on audiobook. And so he explores a rumor that this song by the Scorpions that came out in 1990, right when the Berlin Wall was coming down, was not written by the Scorpions, but actually written by the CIA. And it was like a psyops. You know, the longer you listen, it's eight episodes long, the more you're like, oh my God, this, this might be true. And it is a fascinating journey and it's so entertaining. And it really takes you into that moment in time at the end of the Cold War. I remember it through child's eyes. I was a kid then, but to go back and listen to all these interesting characters and the CIA people. And I just love that stuff. It was fascinating. The only thing I didn't like about it was they did not play enough Scorpions music in the podcast. But yeah, the podcast is great. I'm so happy you mentioned that's awesome. Awesome. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm the biggest Scorpion fan probably on earth right now, but they're in the like mid 70s. So their concert was a little bit different than the one I went to in 1985. But I still love the Scorpions. And I love that you brought that up. The actual last question I ask is, if people want to get in touch with you to learn more about Group RMC, what's the best way to do that? Just get in touch with you, Jim. You know how to contact us or my email. Should I give my email address? I'm happy to share. Sure, if you're comfortable with that, yeah. Yes, of course. It's Evelyn, E-V-E-L-Y-N-E, at grouprmcusa.com. Excellent. And I will put that in the show notes. And this has been fascinating. As I said, Really appreciate the partnership that we have with Group RMC and Leftfield Investors. And the tour I went on was phenomenal. And I really thank you for being on the podcast. This, this will be a great episode and a lot of good stuff in here to learn about a new asset class. So thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. We appreciate your business and uh, appreciate your time and your invitation to come join you today. This has been really fun. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you. Take good care. Hi, I'm Matt Pacheni, here to help you learn to produce passive income, write your own story, and direct your dollars toward positive change. My book, Backstage Guide to Real Estate, will take you through the highlights and the lowlights of my adventures in real estate, starting as a rank amateur just leaving the acting world, all the way to where I am now, an owner of thousands of apartment units across the country. This book is my story in passive real estate investment. Yours will be different reflecting your priorities, goals, and sense of purpose, but I'm hoping that our stories will share one thing, the belief that passive investment is the road to financial freedom, and that you can use that freedom to improve your own life and the life of your family and leave your community, your country, and even the world a little better than you found it. Are you ready? <laughs> Good. Then go to Pacheni.com to get more info on the book. That was an interesting podcast with Evelyn. I did the property tours and saw a lot of those properties, and that's what kind of changed my mind on office, similar to retail and hospitality. Those are three asset classes that I was not interested in, mostly because of the pandemic. But since then, I've toured hospitality with Accountable Equity, and I've toured office with Group RMC, and I've seen that these are asset classes that now is the time to buy when everyone's running the other way, right? That's where you get the deals. Multifamily cap rates have become so compressed that it's really hard to find deals there, but there might be some in some of these other asset classes. And so I was really pleased to have Evelyn on to talk about that. The family company, value investors, that's the kind of people that want to do business with. And I really thought it was interesting how she talked about once the cranes arrive in, in the town, that's when you want to already be an owner. You don't want to be buying properties that need renovations and things when new properties are going up because people will flock to the new properties. So that was an interesting thing. Once you see a bunch of cranes, you want to already be there or skip that town and go to the next one. And also it's fascinating to me that rent collection during the pandemic was 99% and no one was going to the office. 
but rent collection was still 99% because these are corporate tenants, right? They are still paying the rent. They're still in business. They have to pay the rent. It's not like a homeowner or something like that. So that was really surprising. And now the question is, will people keep renewing leases and keep the rent collections that high? And as Evelyn said, people are renewing leases. There's some changes to terms, maybe changes in length, and they're adding some amenities. And that was the other thing that was interesting is to get people back into the office. Employers are requiring these big office buildings to put in shared working space. And instead of everyone having their own cubicle or everyone having their own office, it will be you might only go into the office, like she said, one, two, three times a week. So there's going to be more floating workspaces where you go and you may work in an office one day and then you may work in the middle in the open area another day and there's couches. And we toured some of these properties and they looked comfortable and cozy. If you need quiet time to meet with somebody or on your own, you can go into one of these offices. And then if you're collaborating, you can sit at the table. There's couches, there's TVs, It's just a more relaxed workspace. And I think that is what they're using to entice people back into the office. So again, this is an asset class I put zero thought into until we were connected with these guys through the Family Office Club. And we're thankful for that connection and went on the property tour and was just blown away by the professionalism of all of the people that I met. And getting an understanding of the office asset class really helps me understand that there is a place for this in my portfolio. And that kind of spurred me on to look at other kind of downtrodden asset classes. I mentioned hospitality and retail being two of those. So I'm definitely looking at all of those now and kind of branching out, trying not to chase the shiny object, but learning about new asset classes. And when I find one that makes sense for me, I'm going to go ahead and invest. So great episode. I'm thankful for the relationship we have with Group RMC and with Evelyn. And uh, that is all for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.